you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The Institute of Art and Ideas. Articles, videos and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In what ways has language informed the evolution of philosophy? And is there a point where the usefulness of words ends? On today's episode, we're discussing philosophy's linguistic turn, as well as the general relationship between language and philosophy. To help us discuss our descriptions of the world, we're joined remotely by four leading thinkers. Professor of Philosophy, Jennifer Hornsby, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, Paul Muldoon, post-realist philosopher, Hilary Lawson, and senior philosopher lecturer, Rebecca Roach. So all of the things around us, the tables and chairs and people and conversations and emotions and so forth, all of those categories are linguistic categories which enable intervention, and we could have described them differently. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Barry Smith. So we know that the fundamental question for ancient Greeks in philosophy was what, what there is. Questions about what is there, metaphysics or ontology. Then by the 17th century, Descartes had moved the fundamental questions to what can I know? How can I have knowledge of the world around me? But by the early 20th century, philosophers had convinced themselves that the question was much more about meaning. How could language relate us to the world? That was the medium we used to do our philosophical thinking and to do our science. How could that put us in touch with reality and how could we be sure it was putting us in touch with reality as we thought it did? However, the work that was done by the early philosophers of language with Russell and the early Wittgenstein, Frege before them, was actually going to lead to very technical attempts to connect words and bits of language to reality. And many people now think that that project has simply not succeeded. We haven't been able to find a perfect encapsulation of the way in which language works to put us directly in touch with reality. We try to say things and we hope that they connect, but does that actually succeed? And if it doesn't, then that linguistic turn that philosophy took that way in which we replace questions about what there is or what we know with what we mean may have misled us and may have taken us into areas of philosophy that now look, well, slightly redundant. So I'm going to start by inviting each of our speakers to set out their stall, if you will, and to make their pitch by asking them all the same question. And that is, was the linguistic turn in philosophy a wrong turn for philosophy to take? And if so, where does philosophy go from here? So, Jen Hornsby, perhaps I can invite you to begin. I, I myself am apt to think that we should understand the linguistic term by reference to 
the person who introduced it and from whom it's been taken. And that was uh, Gustav Bergman. And he um, wanted to suggest that philosophers should concern themselves with questions about language. And rather importantly, he made a distinction between ideal language, which he himself was concerned with, and ordinary language. So far as ideal language was concerned, it was going to be a language exclusive to philosophers. Um, and he had his own views about it. And I think he was quite mistaken. So if I'm asked whether the linguistic turn was mistaken, then if it's the one that Bergman was suggesting we should all take, I say, yeah, it was mistaken. But when he spoke of um, the linguistic turn as having application to ordinary language, he wasn't thinking of an ideal language for the use of philosophers and possibly scientists could be let in. He was thinking of ordinary language. And I think if we think of a distinctively linguistic period in the philosophy of the 20th century, we think of ordinary language philosophy. Um, so do I think that was a mistake? Well, certainly I'd want to criticize many of the ordinary language philosophers. I think for, for one thing, um, they tended to focus their questions on words, the ones they paid attention to, quite often didn't have any philosophical significance. And I think I also think that they were much too concerned with questions about what people would actually say, which may not, as it were, um, take you to the concept that you're interested in. Um, so they were interested in paying attention to words and the world in a way that I think Bergman wasn't in, envisaging when he thought of um, uh, the linguistic turn as taking us to language and possibly ideal language. Um, so I've criticized the ordinary language philosophers, the linguistic philosophers of the mid 20th century, but I don't think I'd actually want to say that they made just a mistake, which is what I'm asked. And I think the business of paying attention to words has actually been with philosophy from its very beginning. It's not distinctive to the middle of the 20th century, even though we um, uh, perhaps see it vividly there. Um, and paying attention to words, it seems to me, isn't a mistaken thing for a philosopher to do. Jane, thank you. Um, and that's very useful to have the distinction between Bertrand Russell's, as you called it, the logistical turn. Someone who was concerned with language being fit for the purpose of doing mathematics and science and maybe having to be revised need a, in need of revision versus the attention we might pay to language in its ordinary use and then even in its philosophical use. And that's been around for a long time. So with, with that in mind, I'm moving to Hilary now, who uh, I want you to give us your thoughts about whether the linguistic turn was misconceived in either of these senses. Well, we can debate on, on what we exactly mean by the linguistic term, but I'm just going to take it to, to understand it in the sense of um, the project to describe the relationship between language and the world as being the primary philosophical project. And it seems to me that project has indeed failed. Um, we don't have, as you said in your out, out, outline at the beginning, we don't have a credible theory of that relationship and there's none on the horizon. 
And I think it's for good reason for that, which is that Wittgenstein pointed out shortly after Neil Russell put forward his prospectus, as it were, that there's a contradiction in the idea that you can't, from within language, describe the relationship between language and the world because you have to write that in language and you can't step outside it to say what it's like. And I think the last century has really shown a variety of attempts to try and do this, but, but they fail. And Hilary Putnam, the analytic uh, philosopher, concluded that the project was, and I quote, a shambles. And, and I think that that's right. Um, I don't think that the focus on language was, was a, a mistake entirely in that it did and does draw our attention to the importance of the context of language, that we somehow see the world through language and that changes uh, how, how we see it depending on how our language functions. But I do think we can't, give, we can't give up on the puzzle of this nature of this relationship, even though we failed so far. And, and, and I've, I've put forward a, you know, a, a somewhat um, radical proposal, which is that instead of thinking of language as describing the world, we should think of it as, as that description not being possible. And what, what language actually does, it holds the world as something that we can't get out of the world because the, world, the only world we can get out is through language. So, so what, lang what language is doing is it's holding the world as something and those ways of holding the world enable us to intervene. So all of the things around us, the tables and chairs and people and conversations and emotions and so forth, all of those categories are linguistic categories which enable intervention. And we could have described them differently. So we, the table we could have held as a surface or a, uh, some firewood or as a collection of atoms or whatever. And there's no limit to the number of ways we can hold any, any part of the world, if you like. And the real issue is how we choose between them. And I think that if we move away from the idea of thinking that language is describing the world in some ultimate way, it's, it's potentially liberating for philosophy that instead of trying to define exactly what's going on as if there's a right way, well, I don't think there is a right way, and there's something of nonsense in imagining that there is, and perhaps a dangerous nonsense. Um, and instead, it seems to me that philosophy can move to a situation where it, where it is looking at the ways of closing the openness of the world and looking at the elements of that which are, are problematic and putting forward new closures, new ways of holding the world, which might, might just uh, help us make a better world. Hilary, thank you. Um, I think I think that's that's a very interesting way forward. So we're, we're, in your view, the failure of one definitive view of how language fits the world uh, leaves us with choices about how we might uh, ourselves choose it to fit. And then I, I'm going to come back to you. I'm sure it will come up again. We'll talk about what the constraints on that might be. But Rebecca, same question for you. Linguistic turn, wrong turn. Uh, uh, need, need to understand it differently? Uh, have we got a, a new way of thinking about our relation to language in philosophy? I think the one thing that comes out of this, this whole debate really is something that crops up again and again in philosophical debate, which is um, the idea that there's the world out there and it's, it's somehow just something that we can observe. Um, it's something that we try to get at uh, we want to see the real world, you know, how it is independent of our 
thought and perception. And then we have the medium through which we interact with the world. So that might be perception, concepts, language, and so on. So the, um, the premise of the linguistic term, you know, that there is, uh, there's the world and then there's language, and then we try to, we, we try to link them together, is, is something that's come up again. I mean, we, we, see this in, we see this in Kant, it's a vivid example, not with language, but the idea that there is a, there is a world out there and um, we want to sort of get at it, we want to perceive it as it really is. Um, so, so sort of Kant's idea and what followed from that is, is that's not really possible. We can't get at the world as it really is because the way that we get at it influences the way that we are able to apprehend it. Now, one way of looking at that is that we can never see the world as it really is, if there is such a thing. Um, another way is by taking the awareness of that relationship to be enlightening in itself. So just as we might be aware that uh, the world uh, visually might be different to the way that it appears to us, um, is itself enlightening. I mean, that, that enables us to learn something about the world, that we stand in a particular relationship to it and that, part of, and that there's part of us in what we see. I think we, can, we could make a similar observation about language that... Um, there have been, as, as, as previous speakers have mentioned, there have been various problems um, in the project of trying to describe the world, trying to sort of represent how the world really is, kind of independent of language. But actually, our awareness of what we're trying to do, that we are standing in a certain relationship to the world and we are using language to try and get at it, is itself something that can help us learn about the world uh, and the way it really is, if, if there is if there is such a thing. I mean, it's interesting that language is, is something that helps us connect with the world. I mean, if you just think about the way that you might, if you take something like looking at a tree, for example, um, how your perception and your, your insight into what sort of thing a tree is might be enhanced by learning about the different concepts that are used by botanists. Um, uh, you know, sort of various other sorts of tree experts to describe a tree. Like that can sort of really help you in, in, in some sort of fundamental way see more of what's there. So language is something that enables us to see more of the world. But then, of course, it's also this, this sort of, this thing that mediates between ourselves and the world. Um, there's plenty of really fun evidence uh, for, for this. Um, there's uh, people various studies that have been done on bilingual people checking um, how they how they perceive parts of the world when they are um, thinking in one or other of the languages that they are able to converse in. Um, it can affect our perception of time. Um, it can affect people's uh, perception of music, um, their perception of space, so depending on sort of which language you're, you're thinking in. Um, now, one quite pessimistic conclusion to take from that is that well, we, are, we can't get beyond our language. Our language is something that traps us and prevents us from seeing the world. Um, another is that just that awareness of the way that language shapes our thought is itself enlightening. I mean, it's interesting, for example, that music is something that you can perceive differently depending on which language you're thinking in. That doesn't have to be something that kind of traps us away from the real music if that makes sense. It's something that, that enables us to gain an extra insight into our relationship 
between ourselves and music or between ourselves. Okay, thank you, thank you. So um, lots of ways in which language might be shaping cognition and therefore shaping our, uh, our mediation with uh, being a mediator for how we relate to the world. Nobody yet, I think Jen may have hinted at it, but nobody yet has brought up the idea of, instead of thinking of language solely as this uh, instrument to try to talk about the world, thinking of it more as an interface between minds, and whether or not it's much more a medium for communication and for changing minds. And I'm wondering, as we move to Paul, whether that's a thought that grabs you as someone who crafts words as a way of getting through to other people. So. Uh, sh should we be rethinking the linguistic turn as less about concern with language in the world, more concerned with language and other minds? Well, first of all, I don't think we should stop thinking about the linguistic turn. Uh, first, uh, partly because I don't think it's going to stop thinking about us. Uh, the, uh, to, to, let's think about what the failure of the linguistic turn would look like. Are we absolutely convinced that we would recognize that? What would the success of the linguistic turn look like? How would, how would we um, settle uh, on, it, on its having been successful as a way of thinking? You know, I was struck by your introduction. You were talking about the, the Greek cosmologists mm -hmm. and uh, their engagement uh, early on with how to describe what we have here. You know, that's not something that has disappeared. If anything, that's something that's been thrown into sharper relief all the time as we discover new planets uh, uh, more and more. And I don't think we necessarily have to conclude from that that Zeno made a mistake or that he was wrong. He was taking part in a, in a, a debate perhaps largely with himself, he was, he was setting about trying to make sense of things. So uh, what I'd like to do is very briefly uh, is to say a word or two about words and how they interface, as you describe it, with the world. I think that they do more than interface, actually. Um, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm reminded again and again of Oscar Wilde's great description in The Decay of Lying. He says, uh, there may have been fogs for centuries in London. I dare say there were, but no one saw them. And so we know nothing about them. They did not exist until art had invented them. Now, um, and he talks about the Impressionists, the Impressionists and how they brought us fog. At present, he says, people see fogs not because they are fogs, because poets and painters have taught them the mysterious loveliness of such effects. Now, we can see, I'd submit, that this idea is at once true and untrue. There were fogs, obviously, before the Impressionists, even before Dickens, even before Shakespeare. But we actually recognize some merit in the idea that we're experiencing some aspect of the world as if for the first time. At least that's how we've come to think about it. But we might be able to modify that idea. And I, I think of uh, A.C. Bradley, uh, brother of A.F.H., uh, of course, the great philosopher, uh, who, who uh, gave a lecture as professor of poetry in Oxford in 1901 uh, on the subject of poetry for poetry's sake. And he says, Nat it's nature, that's poetry's nature, is not to be a part nor yet a copy 
of the real world, as we commonly understand that phrase, to, but to be a world by itself, independent, complete, autonomous. And to possess it fully, you must enter that world, conform to its laws, and ignore for the time the beliefs, aims, and particular conditions which belong to you, the other world of reality. And that's a point really at which um, I would take issue with Bradley, that the poem in this case is not part of the real world. I'd say the poem becomes part of the real world. It's another thing in the world, no less a thing in the world than a mountain or a motor car, another word. And it's how we begin to understand the world. And it may be that it's only from poem to poem. Uh, in Pound's great poem, in a station of the metro, the apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bow. That that is, it's true that that, that uh, the under the Paris underground uh, in the Paris underground faces might, for a moment, look like petals. Uh, on a wet black bow. But that's a partial truth. It's a truth, though, that is revelatory. And we will never again quite look at an underground or a bow in quite the same way. So the world is actually changed by language as much as anything else, modified, remade. Oh, that's, that's great. It's nice to have this other perspective, the idea of words as doing something in the world and also just being present in the world. Very interesting that a poem is seen as another contribution to the world. It reminds me of the concretist painters who thought that representation was terribly bourgeois. They wanted their paintings to be things, to almost draw attention to their own physical nature. So maybe, maybe some poetry does that too. But now I want to move on to the, uh, the themes that we're going to uh, dive into so that we can press some of these issues e even, even harder. And Hillary, I, I was struck by Paul's idea, how do we know when a theory of language uh, and its relation to reality has failed? I mean, one thing is we might think, it, we haven't got anything yet, but, but it's too early to call time. It might be very hard to do it, and we shouldn't give up if there's a theory to be had. The other view might be, no, um, and remembering how the later Wittgenstein criticizing Russell's way of idealizing language said, there's nothing wrong with language. It's working perfectly well. It does everything we want it to do. So I'm wondering why you're so convinced that we can't say something more about the relationship between language and the world and philosophy. Well, I think that was indeed Wittgenstein's position. That's, that's why he took up the position in the investigations. He came to the conclusion that it's not possible to generate a theory about the relationship between language and the world. And he basically then took a position which was to avoid making any overall metaphysical claims about that relationship, and indeed to then shift philosophy into something else, a sort of therapy. Whether that was successful or not is a, is a whole other question. Uh, I think that, and, and I agree with the point that Rebecca made, that um, uh, you know, th th there, are, there, are, there are parallels with, with Kant here, that uh, the attempt to try and reach through and describe something in a definitive way uh, it, it is not is not possible, it, even w w whether you frame that in the context of thought or whether you frame that in the context of language. The question is what we then do. 
because we have to face the, 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 that situation that we're unable somehow to, to get through and to describe things. And we, we need accounts that would enable us, enable us to do that. So well, I, well, I, can, I, can I press you on that? Because I wonder if we do, and I wonder if part of Wittgenstein's point was to say, language is doing its job perfectly well. We are able to talk about things. And I wonder whether there's an assumption you're making, I just want to tease it out if it's there, that unless we've got an account of how language relates to reality, which we may never have, uh, then it isn't relating to reality. I mean, some of us, some of us are pretty clear that we think using the words London and Durham is a way of indicating two different places that shouldn't be confused. Uh, that seems to work perfectly well, but, but maybe you dispute that. Maybe you think unless we've got an account of how those words are reaching to those places, they can't be doing that. Is that right? No. So, so I, I think that um, realist philosophers and a good, good part of analytic philosophy has tried to give an explanation of what London and Durham means by trying to account for how the words refer directly to something or, or embedded in a bigger context of language. I don't think that that is possible, but I think we do have to give an account of how we are able to use them as precisely as we are to achieve all sorts of things in the world. And indeed, you know, as far as Wittgenstein is concerned, I think I entirely uh, am at sympathy with the idea that uh, we can't make these overall metaphysical claims about the relationship between language and the world. But I think that the investigation is in somehow in bad faith that he is trying to tell us all sorts of things about language. And, and, and he avoids saying it directly as if he can get away with it like that. And I don't, I don't think we can. I think we have to grapple with the question of what is the story we provide to ourselves which enables us to explain how we can intervene without there being a realistic, uh, a realist uh, understanding of how meaning works. And as I say, I gave a very cursory indication of the sort of a story that I would be wanting to, to propose, which is that, that language holds the world as sort of metaphors. It doesn't say it is like this. It says, hold the world as if it's London, as if it's Durham, and see it like that. And in that context, you will be then able to do all sorts of things. And of course, we are able to refine those metaphors and make them ever more detailed, which gives us the impression that we've sort of arrived. But when when you look really closely at any one of those metaphors, they break down and you can't quite work out what they're about. Jane, do you, do you, do you want to say something about that? Can I bring you in? Well, yeah. Um, I think I want to say something about Hillary. So yeah. I've just referred to him, right? You, we understood whom I meant. Yes. But doesn't that rather suggest that the word Hillary, as it came out of my mouth in the present context, refers to that very man, to Hillary? It might not refer to me, it might refer to what I've said, or it might refer to the ideas behind what I've said. No, 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 no. You're not, I think, going to no, be no, I was careful. to refer to some specific object. Hillary, no. let, let Jen finish her point. I was careful how I spoke. I said I want to ask something of Hillary, and you all knew what I meant. So there's a certain person, a man, who we can see on our screens in the gallery, and it was to him that I was referring. And I don't think there's any question that I might have been referring to a bit of clothing he was wearing or um, his brain. I don't know what he might suggest. 
you know, the, the alternatives were. Rebecca, can I bring you in there too? Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm inclined to agree with, with uh, Jen. I, it reminds me a little bit, uh, this, the picture that, that Hillary's given of um, what Barclay suggested is the way that we learn about what the world is and um, his sort of idealist perspective that um, the way that we learn, say, what an apple is, is we combine the the concept of green with the concept of round with the concept of fruit and so on, um, which is a sort of very nice philosopher's, you know, philosopher's breakdown. But if you think about sort of how a child learns what an apple is, that just the, the concept of an apple is, is way more simple than the concept of all the, the, the simpler concepts that um, some philosophers say that it's composed of. And, and I'm thinking something, I'm having a similar thought here that, um, to a child, the idea of referring to somebody or a place is super simple. I mean, that children are able to point and refer to things before they can use language fluently. So I think the idea that uh, our, our referring terms have a metaphorical use, I mean, I'm just wondering how that meshes with the way that we actually acquire and begin to use language. In many um, ways they would have had a literal use. For example, the place names London, Londinium, going back to Rud, the, the Celtic uh, god, or Durham, the Dur and Durham having something to do with an oak grove. Actually, at their heart, there is some real meaning and some real specificity and some real relationship between the word and the place, which we have sort of forgotten about. Yes. So if, if I can come come back at those points, uh, I, of course, uh, I don't I don't accept those uh, that, that notion. I think children, in fact, when they use words initially, often use them in ways which are completely unrelated to our categories of of objects. So so children can refer to a bus and and actually be referring to a car or or, or their toy, or um, they can call. Um, uh, objects, dada, or whatever. There's a, a fantastically fluid way of the use of those. And I think it's only post hoc that we reinterpret that as if they're being precise in their use of the words. And as far as the use of individual words like Londinium, there have, of course, in any individual case, been relationships that between the ways that words were used and how that metaphor applied when they were first operated. Mm -hmm. But there are countless senses of London uh, in the way that it's referred to in the millions of people who use it all over the world to different effects. And the idea that there is a single thing which all of these refer to, I think is, is mistaken. It's just not how it works. It doesn't, language doesn't work like that. There isn't a correct version of London ways to use London which has valuable uses and there are ways which has invaluable uh, not valuable uses but there's not a correct one well I mean I, I think at the moment if if the police were thinking that Dominic Cummings could help them with their inquiries there would be somebody that they were actually interested in in the way that Jane just indicated and I'm not sure it would help the police's inquiry to say well many people might use it to mean different things and they might they might have thought of many things instead of the, the, the man and the person himself. I mean, I, I, I worry that it's a very highfalutin theory that you're giving us when 
we seem to be doing pretty well in raising the topics and even having this discussion. And, and I point to different speakers and I say, now Hillary, now Paul. I, I, I wonder how that could be working if it's as problematic as you I think it's not working in that we don't have a decent theory of the relationship between language and the world, and it looks impossible. But, but, but Hillary, I would encourage. I would encourage. Hillary, that was that was the issue. I would encourage everyone to put forward their story. No, 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 Hillary, Hillary, the issue. No, you, we, we, we're. This is the point I was trying to raise with you earlier. The, the, the question is: suppose we don't have a theory of how words relate to the world. Does it then follow that words don't relate to the world? I mean, th those are two different things. It might be we never have a theory of it, but they're still managing just fine. That may be our, our, our cognitive limitations. It might be that it's a very complicated story. We might not have been smart enough. But the question is, do we, do we say that it's only if we have a theory of how words relate to things that words relate to things? And, it's, and I haven't seen anything you've argued for that insists that must be true. I don't think. I don't think what you're already embedding there a notion of what's really going on. What is really, you know, words relate to things. You're saying, oh, that's how it really is. Words relate to things, and we can see that that's the case, and we don't need this other stuff. Well, in some sense, of course, I understand what you're trying to say there, but you're sort of hopping out of language to say, oh, I can see what's going on. Words re re relate to things, and yes, it's a bit tricky that we haven't got a theory, and, uh, and, uh, but we can get by. Well, I don't think it's as straightforward as that. I think that the fact that we are unable to, to come up with a theory points to a bigger puzzle and a bigger question that we've misunderstood what language is doing. Uh, and, uh, and that, of course, my, the challenge for me is to be able to give you an account of how it is that language can be as precise as it is, how we can get exactly those fine-tooth definitions which enable us to intervene accurately, even though it's not based on some sort of realist theory. It's based on, on, a, on our framing those metaphors. And I, I attempted to try and do that, but now is not the time to try and, try and explain how that is possible. Now is not the time, but, but, but look, I think we, we've maybe got as far on that theme as we can. I, I want to move on and I, I, I want to uh, bring in Jen here because the thought is, if, if we don't have a theory and if we're not formulating uh, a theory of how language relates to the world, are there still other things that philosophy wants to do where language matters and where language is important, which is not that task? Yeah. I think I indicated that I thought language might very, very often be important, as it were. One, yeah. as a philosopher, needs to pay attention to the words one uses. But also, um, it, it's a question how a theory which relates language to the world should be conceived. But I think I've also made it clear that I think we know that bits of language relate to objects. And I take it there are other bits of language that... Um, are connected with properties and objects can exemplify properties. So there's stuff we can say, whether we can put it all together and have a theory of how language relates to the world. I mean, for one thing, we'd have to take one language at a time. Um, so I, I, I'm not quite sure what the mission is to have a theory that relates language to the world, given that we can say all sorts of things about how bits of language relate. Um, but I'm also very unclear that... Um, uh, because that project 
has somehow failed. We can't go on using language in philosophy and be attentive to the words that actually we use. Good, good. I mean, I, 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 I'm wanting to probe uh, your thoughts about how we do that. So, so, I mean, you could have a view, which I think you think is faulty, uh, which is if we can't have a theory of how language relates to the world, philosophy should stop being preoccupied with language. And you're, you're saying there are other things about language that philosophy should be very attentive to. And I was wondering if you could just illustrate some of those. And I'm thinking of your work in feminism, and I'm thinking of your work on, on uh, uh, you know, language that could be derogatory pe to people. There are other things which are not about the language world relation per se. And I wondered if you could illustrate some of that so we see what philosophy could still be preoccupied with in language now. Yeah, I don't, I don't think preoccupation is quite right because I think whenever we use a bit of language, we've said something and um, we can understand what's said without being preoccupied with the words that are used. And most people actually um, just hear what's said rather than think about the words that were uttered. Yeah. But so you asked me to say something specific. Um, I think sometimes we can say interesting things by comparing pairs of words, which on the face of it are applied to the same, let's say, group of human beings, but realize there are differences and realize that we'd be better off not using one of these words. So this would be a derogatory term. Um, I mean, the, the prime example always given is is the n-word which of course is appropriated by some people to whom it applies but myself I would never use that word even though I think I know which people it applies to. Could you say what philosophers, can you can you say for, for the audience what philosophers preoccupations are because a lot of people might share those views and say yes we shouldn't use the n-word what's the philosophical uh, preoccupation that we can I, I don't I won't use the word preoccupation you don't like it what's the philosophical thing that might haunt us and make us want to attend to and say there's a philosophical issue to address here about the use of such words? Um, I think it's an issue which a philosopher who said stuff about what it is for words to have an extension if they're properties or whatever can attend to. But I don't think the issue is one for philosophers. I mean, you know, insofar as I'd recommend people within my community not to use a certain word, I wouldn't recommend it only to philosophers that I know. But there are, no, 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 no. But we're maybe misunderstanding each other here. There is a literature in philosophy about derogatory words. And I'm wondering if you can help people in the audience figure out what's that, what's the philosophical issue? Because we could all sit here as human beings and say, we shouldn't use such words and we understand that. And in fact, we ourselves would never use them. What's the philosopher's interest here in that issue? Uh, the trouble is it's multiple. I mean, if you'd read the li literature, which has stemmed from the idea of a derogatory word, you'd know that there are massively many distinctions made and so on. Um, and if I do, I was hoping you might illustrate it because um, we're, we're trying to make a philosophical thought available to a wider audience here. So, To be honest, I don't think it's... Um, so I introduced this idea of um, useless words, I think I called them, and derogatory terms were in that category. Um, and to be honest, I don't, I don't think much light has been cast on them by looking at the details of conversational implicature, pragmatics, this, that and the other. Um, so I don't know which of the various theories which purport to explain this um, 
I'd okay. want to do maybe, maybe I could do something. Okay. Maybe I mean, I you might say something similar about Rebecca's work on swear words. Well, I was going to go to Rebecca and see if, if she can yeah. help us by saying, you know, we know there are words you shouldn't use in polite company and we sh some we shouldn't use at all. But, but I'm wondering whether you could help us say, what's the philosopher's interest here other than the general public's interest? Rebecca. Well, a lot of this has to do with the fact that we don't just use language to describe the world and refer yeah. to the world. Um, we use it for all sorts of other reasons as well. Um, so if you choose to uh, use the N word, then you're, uh, you're not only saying something about the, about the world, but you're also signalling something about what sort of person you are. I mean, you're indicating that you're a racist, unless it's, uh, you know, there's various other complicated uses of it, so it's uses um, by rappers and so on, where it's sort of reappropriated. Um, and, and there are plenty, I mean, this is sort of poetry is going to be another a good example here, but there are, there are all sorts of, there are various words for the same thing, and choosing one rather than another can enable us to signal something about some, something about ourselves or about um, the relationship between the thing that we're referring to and other things. Um, it can enable us to say something about the person we're talking to and so on. Um, so swear words is a nice example. This is an interest of mine. Um, there are uh, there are plenty of sweary expressions, which it's not clear whether they actually refer to anything or whether they sort of mean anything in an obvious sense. I think sisters can think of their own examples, but they still have a use. You know, even though they don't refer, they enable us to um, to express emotion or to signal our annoyance or our disrespect. So um, this idea that sort of the language is used to describe and refer to the world, of course, and that's um, perhaps the most important use it has. But um, it also does all these other sorts of things as well. It's, a, it's an enormous part of the way that we sort of signal things about ourselves and our relationships with other people. Okay, I want to bring in Paul here because as somebody who uses words professionally as a, a poet, I mean, the use of strong emotive words, the use of uh, uh, sweary words, uh, is, is, is difficult maybe to say what the meaning is, but, but they have a very precise uh, linguistic uh, character. I mean, linguists have been working on the fact that you can say unfucking believable, but you can't say unbelief fuckable. Uh, so so are, you, are you aware of uh, thinking of how words are doing many things at the same time, even though you're interested in the form and their form, Paul? Um, yeah, I think as, uh, as human beings, we're fascinated by that. And, um, you know, as children, we're um, fascinated by, by the idea that there might be a couple of words hovering around a thing. Um, though in general, in general, you know, we t within a language, we tend to, to settle on one. And even though many of us live by the thesaurus uh, and are fascinated by the synonym, for example, I think it's fair to say that all synonyms are not equal. And when one changes the word, an adjective coupled with a noun, one is actually changing what is being described. There's a... Um, uh, the thing that uh, emerges, uh, that floats up off the page, is is, is uh, a very specific thing. 
and its specificity, I think, is what most writers are, are interested in. Um, and in general, of course, uh, swear words are something we, we, we avoid like the plague. <laughs> <laughs> and the plague is very much on our minds at the moment, as you know. It seems to be. It seems to be. Uh, can, can I, I mean, it seems to me what, what, what's going on with words is that they are trying to change things. They're trying to do something. We are trying to intervene, as it were. And, and the, uh, the uh, grammar of, of the descriptive words is sufficiently far from achieving something that it looks as if that's not what's going on. But it seems to me that is what's going on. And that, that with swear words and so forth, we're trying to achieve something. And those words are about trying to get them to happen. And when, when Paul d describes situation of all synonyms, you know, are, are, don't have the same consequence. Well, that's because they're not referring. They are different ways of holding this stuff. And there's an infinite number of ways of holding. And it seems to me poets, part of the key thing is poets provide us with new ways of holding. And we're able to carry, run with the metaphor, the poet metaphor. And oh, yes, I, I see how I can hold it like that. I, I agree and with you. As a result of that, we can then, you know, it changes our world. Paul, I, I agree with you, but in a strange way, I am more in favor of your earlier argument, which is that it, the words don't hold with a thing at all, that actually one is creating a new thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, in a strange way, actually, you're ever so slightly arguing against yourself. I, I believe that uh, the, the poem Never mind the poem, just but as we speak here, we are actually constructing ideas that have not quite existed before. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and I certainly, I certainly uh, agree with you absolutely on that, and I agree with you on the slipperiness of, of words. It was brought home to me a couple of years ago when I, I, I bought tickets to see a band I really like, uh, Fountains of Wayne, in the Trocadero. And I wrote to one of the members of the band and said, I'm really looking forward to seeing you in the Trocadero. And I, of course, was in London, imagining that they were in the Trocadero in London, whereas they, in fact, were in L.A. So that's an example of how one's grasp on reality is really very slippery. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, there is a kind of normative. On one hand, we're looking at a new, look, seeing new things that correspond to, to, to some degree. There's something recognizable. Otherwise, we wouldn't quite recognize what's not recognizable about these new constructs. So, so if I could just try to uh, move to the last theme, and we don't have an awful lot of time for it, but it, it would allow us to talk, I think, quite well about what survives and what doesn't. So there was this talk in the, uh, in the, in the beginning, and Jen mentioned it, about if, if we can't connect language to the world by a theory, are some projects vitiated? And I'm wondering whether there's still something that we care about and that might still live on, which is the difference between what people say and what they mean. Uh, so we are... We are talking as though we see language as being very slippery and maybe, according to Hillary, 
We can hold it in many different ways. I'm not sure what that means. That, that's a metaphor, and I, I, I'd like that cash, but I'm not sure this is the time. But if we're thinking, what is the, um, uh, what is the, uh, what is, what is the cash value of that distinction between which we think of with our politicians just now, between what is said and what is meant, whether somebody really did uh, say something but had no intention of doing it, or were, and if we didn't have a sense of there being a way in which we could hold people to their words, with those meanings having a very definite sense, I'm wondering how we could have that distinction in our minds still. Iron is, iron is a very, very difficult thing. When I said earlier on that I, we avoid uh, swear words like the plague, I wasn't been exactly straight on. <laughs> and yet no one was quite sure how to take that. And, you know, that's in the context of the Zoom Zoom. And when we, when we start uh, being ironic on email, it becomes even more difficult to register that. Probably if we were all sitting in the same room, you'd know immediately that I was being not quite serious. So there is, the, the distinction between what's being said and what, uh, what it means is, uh, is one that I'm, you know, for worse generally is one that we're confronting every day now. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether um, Jen thinks there's still a project in philosophy uh, to, to look at what we do with words and hold people accountable to what they do with words. And this being something which requires us to have such a distinction in mind between when they're being slippery and when they're being literal, when they're declaring their intentions, when they're fate, feigning intentions but not having them, Jen. Well, I suppose I think philosophers, um, politicians, for whom you began with, um, are accountable for telling us the truth. And I think at present, um, quite a lot of politicians quite often don't tell us the truth. I mean, it, it's complicated because, of course, they mislead where they can, rather than simply come out with something which is straightforwardly false. But I think in being in a position to criticise philosophers for having said untrue things... I have to take it for granted that concerning the words they used, they meant them, as it were, concerning what they said, which has the meaning it does as it came out of their mouths. Um, that was it. And in my view, it's false or misleading. So yes, I do think we have to care about um, what words mean, as it were, in order to conduct our lives. And it's yes. not just politicians, obviously. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.